Welcome to the NPS MedicineWise podcast, helping health professionals stay up to date with the latest news and evidence about medicines and medical tests. My name is Jill Thistlethwaite. I'm a GP and medical advisor at NPS MedicineWise. Um, I'm also an education consultant with an interest in communication skills and shared decision making. The management of chronic non-cancer pain is a complex area. Long-term management should take a multidisciplinary approach that minimizes use of opioids and encourages self-management strategies. We know that the analgesic effects of opioids attenuate over time due to physiological tolerance, physical dependence, or opioid-induced hyperalgesia. Physical dependence is common and withdrawal symptoms occur if chronic treatment is stopped suddenly. MPS Medicine Wise is running an educational program on opioids, the bigger picture, and this is for health professionals and consumers. Today, I am joined by Leah Dwyer and Hester Wilson. Welcome, Leah and Hester. Leah, if you could just tell us a few words about yourself. Uh, my name is Leah Dwyer, and I am a consumer advisor for Pain Australia. I also work for Pain Revolution on their communications committee. I'm quite passionate about pain education, and I'm a remedial massage therapist who was diagnosed with cervical dystonia 14 years ago, and I used opioids to manage the related pain. Thank you, Leah. And Hester, a few words about yourself. Yeah, hi. Um, I'm a GP and an addiction specialist working in, in Sydney. I have worked overseas, but also always in large metropolitan centres. Uh, and I do acknowledge that the settings that my colleagues uh, work in in Australia in rural, regional and remote areas is very different to the metro situation. Um, so I've been working in clinical practice for 30 years now, and I'm just in the process of um, starting to do some research looking at the GP's experience of uh, people that, that suffer chronic pain are using opioids who may actually be getting into problems with their opioid use and how they might respond to that. Thank you, Hester. Um, so, Leah, you mentioned that you have experience with using opioids for chronic non-cancer pain and also that you have had dependence. Can you tell us a little bit more about your story? Well, I had a really boring little accident at my son's school about 14 years ago. And I developed whiplash and got a concussion. I fell backwards in a, in a mother's running race. I, I lost, by the way. Um, and when I developed a lot of really strong neck pain, I went to a doctor and asked for something to help with the pain, um, was given some tramadol for, uh, I think it was two weeks supply of tramadol. Um, that didn't really help with the pain at all. And then I was, I was referred to a neurologist because by that time I had developed a uh, involuntary muscle movement. And the neurologist diagnosed me with cervical dystonia, which is a neuromuscular condition. He suggested that the only treatments available were Botox and probably antidepressants and painkillers. Uh, so I did Botox for a year, but during that time, I the pain was so severe, actually, 
that I started looking for something to to tackle that and opioids were really the only thing that made a dent in my pain. So I started taking uh, an over-the-counter, at that time, over-the-counter pill, uh, Mersindol, which was codeine. And I ended up taking that for about eight years. And during that time, I took more and more Mersindol. I started out taking two to four a day. Then it just escalated over time, very, very gradually. But because I'd been told right in the very beginning that my condition would deteriorate, I thought that my condition was getting worse. So I was experiencing more and more pain, which I needed more and more coding to, to deal with. So I, I knew nothing about how opioids worked. I didn't know anything about opioid-induced hyperalgesia. I didn't know anything about tolerance or dependence back then. I thought my condition was getting worse and I needed more of the drug. Mm. That's, that's a, a familiar story in many ways, but also very individual as, as well. Um, and Hester, as prescribers, we are often told about the harms of opioids and we hear about the risk of dependence with opioid use. Is this exaggerated in the media? Yeah, look, I think the media has a particular story to tell. And I think the reality is it's much more complex. You know, bottom line is opioids are essential medicines. And we have this bizarre situation in our world where a small um, group of countries overuse opioids and we use the majority of opioid medicines in the world and other parts of the world, people can't access them at all. There is no doubt that opioids are terrific medications for severe acute pain. What is clear now, however, is that they're problematic in the management of, of severe chronic pain. Um, you know, and so it, it's, it, it's the, the issue is that um, what we know is that there is a risk of developing problems from your opioid use with chronic pain. And, and, and Leah's story, you know, it, it, it just breaks my heart. You know, you've, you have had severe pain. You were trying to manage that. Um, you know, you started using over-the-counter medications and you had no idea really what it was that was going on. And so that really flags to me the importance of for us as doctors to really understand ourselves and to spend some time explaining the the, the kind of the nuances of this medicine that is, is it's great medicine, but it does have side effects. It does have issues. Uh, and, and all of us as human beings, if we're taking opioids for any period of time, are at risk of developing problems. Yes, and, and those are things we really do need to be aware of and, and have conversations about. And um, Leah, you, you mentioned that you weren't really given that much information about uh, tramadol, uh, other opioids, when you were prescribed them. Uh, can you remember anything about what was said? Really, honestly, I I wasn't given any information about tolerance or dependence. Um, I remember I was given tramadol and told, I can't give you more than a two-week supply. And that was it. No, no explanation as to why she couldn't give me a two-week supply. And she was a very brisk doctor that I used to go to at a walk-in clinic, um, and I, I kind of liked the fact that she was 
very brisk because I like to get in and out. Um, so when she just said, I can't give you more than a two week supply, I thought, okay, I, I, that's a doctory thing. I don't know anything about that. I'll take my two week supply and just, uh, run with that. Um, but I also was prescribed at one point, uh, kind of in the last year of the eight years, I was prescribed liquid morphine. And um, when I filled it out at the chemist, the chemist said, oh, the, um, what's this for? Because it's really, really strong and morphine is very addictive. And that was actually the, the first time somebody said to me, this, this is really strong medication. And I know t there's a huge leap between tramadol and morphine, but um, she was the first person to, to kind of say, you know, this is, this is really strong stuff. Are you, are you sure you want this? Which, which was really interesting. And, you know, kind of her, the concern on her face made me kind of think, oh, maybe I should really kind of think about this and research it and be, a, be cautious about it. So it was the pharmacist who first mentioned addiction to you. Um, yeah, you know, she was the first one to say that. And when I took the first dose, I, I actually took it first thing in the morning. And um, I was actually sick at work, which, you know, led me to conclude that I shouldn't take it first thing in the morning, uh, just at night. So I took one meal at night and that helped me sleep really well, which I needed. But um, yeah, the, the level of concern on her face kind of prompted me to, to think that maybe I needed to really know what I was putting in my body and that I needed to think about it. Um, so Hester, we, we talked about addiction there. Um, what would you say is the difference, if any, between addiction and dependence? And can this affect anybody who, who takes opioids? Yeah. So look, for me, there is a very, very specific differences between dependence and addiction. Uh, and look, addiction is a, a term that is a little problematic and the way that we talk about um, uh, problematic opioid use is having an opioid use disorder. So part of the opioid use disorder is having, um, as, as Leah described, needing more, you know, escalating the dose. So becoming tolerant um, to the, the medicine. So you need more to get the same effect. And that's one of the 11 criteria for having an opioid use disorder. The other is having withdrawal symptoms. So with opioids, um, you can, after you've been on them for a while, develop the tolerance. And then when you try and stop them, you have withdrawal symptoms. And they're pretty specific, but it depends on what what um, particular ones people can have different um, symptoms that they ha that they would have as an individual? It can be things um, from uh, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, stomach cramps, anxiety, insomnia, deep leg aches, sweating, pupillary dilatation, and 
goose flesh um, are the big ones that people notice. It can also send your pulse rate up a little and your blood pressure up a little. So it's it's it, it's an un, it's an un, and it's a very uncomfortable, miserable condition. And the other really important part of it is your brain saying to you, "You've got to get this medication. We can't deal with these tab with with these symptoms. You have to get your medication to stop these symptoms." Uh, and so dependence is it, there can be a psychological dependence, which is the the thought of I can't do without this. And very commonly, people will experience some anxiety. I'm going to run out. I need to have my script with me. I need to make sure that I've got enough to tide me over just in case the doctor is away. Um, and so they might hoard a few and it really is around that, that worry that they're going to be without. Um, and the next step up from that is the physical dependence, which, which includes those physical withdrawal symptoms and, and the tolerance. On top of that, there are other behaviours that people can experience, which can lead to a, a mild, moderate or severe opioid use disorder. And that will include things like um, repeatedly asking for dose increases or taking big dose increases that are not um, sanctioned by your doctor, um, attending multiple doctors to, to, to get more um, medicines. Um, it can be moving towards using more effective delivery modes for your opioids, including injecting. It can mean that you um, go into other behaviours which are around, um, you know, things that get you into trouble, things like stealing scripts or forging scripts, you know, and, and, and they are a measure of how much impact the opioid use disorder is having on your life. The other important part of it, which I think is a really good way to look at it, is the salience, the importance that it takes in your life. So it becomes bigger and bigger and bigger, a bigger part of your life. So it stops you from going to work. It stops you from parenting. It stops you from going out with mates. It stops you from kind of having your relationships and it takes over more and more of your life. So it's a kind of a spectrum. Um, and we will see people, and Leah, I haven't heard your full story around all the kind of experiences that you had, but what I'm seeing there is someone who, who has developed a physiological and psychological dependence, but is less likely to perhaps to have those other um, really tricky behaviours that tell us that this medication is really causing harm to the individual. Mm. So, so it can be a very distressing um and scary um, these symptoms that people have and, and often they won't understand what's happening to them. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Um, so, uh, Leah, you, you mentioned uh, the pharmacist said uh, about the, the medicine being uh, potentially addictive um, and that you then went off to do some research. So what happened then? How did you think about your medicine and decide to do something about it? I, th I think the catalyst actually was one morning when I, I used to keep all my drugs in the fridge. <laughs> I don't, I'm not really sure why. Um, and I, I instead of taking two Mersindol first thing in the morning, I took three tablets. And a little voice inside of me said, Leah, what the heck are you doing? And my bigger voice said, it's, it's okay, it's only for today, it's going to be a rough day, you've got a lot of clients, um, you know, you've, you've got to see the ex-husband <laughs> in the middle of the day. And, and so I was kind of preempting my day 
because I knew it was going to be a painful day. But this little voice that said, what the heck are you doing, really kind of countered that little decision to take three instead of two. And it really did say, um, this is just another excuse to, to up the amount that you're taking because over kind of a, a year long period, I realized I was taking more than um, at that point I was taking 12 a day and I had started to, to sometimes go to 14 and at that point uh, 15 and it really was kind of a, a mental slap in the face and it, it really was the catalyst to, to me saying, is this really the way I want my life to be? Do I really want my life to revolve around this little pill? Do I really want to be having to carry it in every bag and every jacket and always be trying to find, you know, another pharmacist that has Mercindol on the shelf or um, doesn't look at me funny like, didn't I just see her two weeks ago? All, all these little things that had started to really pile up um, started to really slap me in the face. And very coincidentally, it was just the year before. So a couple of months before uh, codeine was going to be upscheduled anyway. And I thought, I can go to a doctor and get a script for Mercindol. Any, any doctor will probably give it to me once I tell them I've got dystonia or I can change my life. And I, I decided to change my life. I decided that I didn't want to be attached to this drug anymore. And I'd experienced enough um, side effects like constipation and brain fog and sleeplessness and um, just just that anxious feeling all the time of, of, you know, do I have the pills? Um, and I really was to be perfectly honest, really tired of it. Mm. So you, you became very motivated to change your life. Um, but how did you, how did you go about it? Cause it, it couldn't have been easy to reduce and, and then stop. It, it was not easy. Tapering off of an opioid is difficult. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. But I decided to go back to that friendly pharmacist who works uh, a couple of doors down from, from the clinic that I'm at. And I just point blank said to her, I'm taking too much Mercindol. And she said, yes, I know. And I thought, oh, thank God. <laughs> somebody, somebody knows and they're going to help me. And I said, I need help. And we devised a tapering schedule. And she said, anytime you need to come in, even if it's just for me to hold your hand for one minute, um, come in, don't hesitate because this is going to be difficult and you're going to go through a lot physically and emotionally and mentally. And once we devised the tapering schedule, I thought, okay, I need to know everything possible about opioids. And there's a lot out there. So I just picked a couple of books and read those while I was tapering because I thought I need uh, kind of 
scientific reassurance. I'm, I'm a real lover of science. And I, every time I started to feel like I can't do this, I can't do this, I would pick up the book. And the most important thing I learned was that everything I was going through was actually quite normal in that this is what a, a what an opioid does to a human brain and this is normal when you begin to taper things like uh you know an increase in my pain which was really hard to deal with because normally an increase in pain i would want to reach for the opioid um, but i knew at that point i knew enough at that point to know that my brain was saying, give me the drug. <laughs> and I was saying, no, I am not giving you the drug. We're not doing this anymore. Um, and, you know, sweating and uh, an increase in the tremor that I normally get from the dystonia. And it, and it was almost like my brain was throwing every single, ba you know, trick at me. I'm going to make her shake. I'm going to make her hurt more. I'm going to make her sleepless. I'm going to make her feel sick all in an effort to get this, this opioid. Um, so I was prepared, very prepared to experience a lot of really crappy things. Um, but I think that learning about what an opioid does to, uh, uh, any brain really, really helped me feel stronger because then I didn't think that, oh, you know, this, I'm not strong enough for this. I'm, I'm not, you know, I can't do this. It, it really gave me a lot of, um, strength to, to realize that I'm, I'm really normal. I'm reacting very normally to taking this drug slowly away from my brain. Yeah, I mean that's that's just so powerful, and and it does show that people can taper successfully when motivated, and also when they have an understanding of what's happening to them. But Hester, what in for those people who have problems tapering, different effects that happen when they try to taper, what's the role for opioid substitution therapy? Um, is it available, and um, who should have it? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I, I, I just would just be careful about, first of all, saying only motivated people are, you know, the motivated people are the ones that are going to be able to taper. And and I do, you know, acknowledge um, what Leah was saying about how difficult it is and how much support you need. And I, it's just so wonderful that you had um, a, a practitioner that said, if you just want to come in and I hold your hand for one minute, I'm here, that we, we're going to do this together. And and the, the support and the therapeutic alliance that happened there that is so important. It's, it's really brilliant to hear um, but the reality is that a group of people and look it's really hard to know when you start opioids if you're going to be someone that's going to get into trouble with them and develop a dependence or develop an opioid use disorder you know there are groups of people perhaps who are at higher risk but you know, probably the vast majority of us, if we were on them for long enough, may well have issues uh, with this medication. It's it's just part and parcel of the way our bodies respond to this medication. We have opioid receptors all over our brain and all over our body. So it's not surprising um, that we will have this very, very common side effect. And it's always been really interesting to me that you have side effects, things like constipation and so on. And then you have dependence and addiction as if it's something different. It is a side effect. 
Um, and and so when I'm seeing someone who is is become clear that first of all opioids aren't assisting them, um, there are issues around their risk with their opioid use, and it's time um, to to start changing that. Uh, it, it is really important that, first of all, you do need to do a safety and risk assessment, but as much as you can, this is a shared decision that you're making together to change this. And what I do know and what we hear from Leah as well is that once you get through this, life gets better. Uh, and so working with the individual to, to, to look at how you can decrease risk and that may be things including supervised dosing or stage supply of the medication, so getting small amounts, looking at that overall risk, and I know we'll talk in a little while about overdose, um, but then working with them to slowly cut that dose down at the rate that they can cope with. And some people will find that they just cannot get that dose down. And it's not a matter of them being weak or unmotivated. The fact is that they have developed a significant dependency. Uh, and they are the group that do very well with medication-assisted treatment of opioid dependence or opioid, what are we calling it here? Um, opioid substitution therapy. Um, and when we're talking about opioid substitution therapy, we're talking about specific programs that are state-based with methadone and buprenorphine which are opioid replacements. And in this group of patients, this treatment works really well. The treatment outcomes are excellent. Uh, there are different rules in different states. Um, in New South Wales here, GPs can commence people on Suboxone, which is buprenorphine. Uh, in other states, they can't. South Australia, I think they can. Other states, there are different rules. But doctors in states can seek support for their patients from specialist services if you can't start it yourself in your state and can be involved in supporting their patient um, to, be, to begin um, that therapy and then actually can continue managing that therapy in their general practice, um, in, their in, their, in their setting. Um, they will need to have an authority from the state-based authority services. Um, you know, so one of my concerns with, with opioid substitution therapy is that it's not as accessible or as available as it could be. And so there, there is an unmet need there, um, both for people who have a history of illicit opioid use and injecting opioid use, and for people that are oral users and have developed it as a result of trying to treat their pain, that people cannot access this, this very highly evidence-based and safe treatment as much as um, you know, they need it and they should be able to. So one of my take-homes for anybody listening to this is check out your state-based sites around what is available in your state for your patients um, to access that treatment um, should anyone need it. I should also flag at this point that all of the states have 24-7 numbers for drug and alcohol specialist advice services, um, which you can look up on the web as well. So if you're in your general practice, you can just give them a call. They will have a chat to you and help you create create a plan which may well involve things like you know decreasing risk with stage supply may look at the tapering dose down and if the tapering isn't working then moving across to opioid substitution therapy is a really great idea so I, I do take your point about motivation and I, I suppose I was meaning more around the um, because we've, we've talked in other educational resources in our program about the cycle of change and the point where you are in that cycle of change. So I will take on board that fact about being careful about motivation 
Um, because I, yeah, I can understand that you, you don't want to uh, blame someone because they're not motivated. So good point. Um, but you have mentioned the risk of overdose. And, and um, what should the prescribers do um, to reduce the risk of overdose? Um, and, and can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So in terms of risk of overdose, what is clear is as the dose increases, so does your risk of overdose. Uh, So it's really important to get a sense of what the oral morphine equivalent dose is. Um, The Australian and New Zealand Pain Society or Association um, have a really great app which helps you to kind of look at the um, the morphine equivalents. You know, so codeine has a particular one, tramol, tramadol has a particular one, so on and so forth, so that you can get a bit of sense of what dose your patient is actually on because we know as the dose goes up, so does the risk. The other thing to be thinking in your individual patients is do they have other risks because of their individual situation? So, for example, do they have respiratory illness? Are they someone that has sleep apnea or severe asthma or CAL um, that decreases their their ability to, um, if they are having, if they're taking opioid, and the way that opioids um, lead to overdose is through a uh, respiratory depression. So if you've somebody got someone that's got impaired lung function, they're going to be an increased risk of that. Are they on other medications that are sedating that are likely to lead to respiratory depression? Are they taking any other substances, alcohol, benzodiazepines, um, other sedatives that increase their risk of having respiratory depression? Um, do they have do do have they had overdoses in the past? You know, so and 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 how are they using their opioids? If they're injecting, if they're using more potent opioids like fentanyl and um, heroin, you, you, your risk is increased as well. But please remember that a large number of people who are oral users of opioids um, do experience hypoxia. Um, and some people will have repeated non-fatal overdoses, which actually really af- affect their cognition and their brain. And also a group of people do unfortunately um, die by opioid overdose. Thank you. Yeah, that's, it's, it's, there's so many things to remember um, uh, around this topic. And um, hopefully this, the, what we've been talking about this evening will be helpful for health professionals out there who wish to improve their skills in these difficult conversations. Um, So we're running out of time. Leah, any main messages that you would like listeners to to take on board? I I would really like people to know that if you live with a chronic condition, which, um, you know, and you have a chronic pain with that condition, or you live with, you know, chronic non-cancer pain, back pain, neck pain, there is life after opioids. I, I think that a lot of people think that they have no choice or that the only choice they have um, is, is another drug. And I, I really want people to understand that there's, there are a lot of other things that we can do as chronic pain patients um, to, to change our pain. Um, I'm especially passionate about pain neuroscience education um, and, you know, a multidisciplinary approach such as psychology, CBT, um, you know, physio massage is a great one as well. I, I, I just really think that we've 
lots of times we get caught in this idea that this is all there is for to manage our pain. And it's just not true. Thank you. And uh, Hester, any closing remarks you'd like to make? Just just a, a three things I think that are important. First of all is um, don't forget about naloxone. And so just thinking back to the risk of overdose, that there is now a um, intranasal option called Nixoid that is available for us as prescribers to prescribe for our patients. So anybody that you're treating with opioids, consider the risk of overdose and consider providing them with Nixoid and also talking to their family, the family and carers and friends who might be around to explain to them what the signs of overdose are and how they can respond by giving Nixoid and calling an ambulance. The other two are related and it's about language and about messaging and I really agree very much with Leah uh, that the experience that my patients can have is this fear, this this terror about not having their medication. And I suspect it's something that opioids do to your brain that make you believe that you cannot do without it. And, and absolutely, there is life after these medications. Uh, and, and looking at those other options that you can use to manage your pain are really important. So, and for us as, as um, prescribers, as doctors, really think about the language that you use. With my patients, I'm aware that what happens for them is that there can be a lot of shame and guilt about the fact that they've ended up in this situation. And the reality is this is because this, we have opioid receptors all over our bodies and it is a really common normal response to having these medicines, being exposed to these medicines long term. Um, you know, so I think it is, it's for us as prescribers, it's to be curious, to be respectful, to support our patients with a goal of helping them have the best possible life they can and working together over time. And don't be afraid to seek help from specialist services, um, from your colleagues, if you're finding that you don't know what to do next or, you know, you're concerned but um, you feel like you're out of your depth. Seek help. You don't have to do this all on your own. Thank you. That was that was very, very powerful messages from both of you. And, and I'm sure that our listeners will really take those to heart um, as they continue to um, work in this area. Um, so I'd like to thank Hester and Leah. Um, and I'd just like to remind our listeners that um, there are many resources um, around opioids and prescribing for both health professionals and consumers, um, including about conversations that we can have um, and the language to use on our website at www.mps.org.au. So thank you very much and good evening. For more information about the safe and wise use of medicines, visit the NPS MedicineWise website at nps.org.au.